0: Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from space kraken to giant sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code Isaac The vast gulfs between stars may take decades or even centuries to travel, requiring enormous generation ships, carrying families and whole ecosystems with them. What will life be like on board such arcs? When Jessica was three years old, her family boarded the Francis Bailey, a massive colony ship bound for Lakaille 8760 and M0 Orange Red Dwarf 13 light years from Earth. She barely remembers waving goodbye to Earth in 2263 AD, and knows Earth mostly through videos and VR of the world, not her family's small apartment in Tennessee or their dog who couldn't come along for the journey and who remained with her grandmother Emily. Jessica never really thought of herself as part of the original crew for the ship, she never got any training for space before the flight unless you count the Zero Gravity Bounce House at the daycare she went to for the last few weeks before they departed when they were living at the space dock. By the time she was twenty, the number of people born on the trip was nearly as numerous as those who signed up, and those who were kids when the voyage began were the smallest of three groups, and occupied a strange spot in the ship's emerging culture. As a ship carrying settlers for a new planet, even though most of the colonists were making the journey in cryostasis, many were making the journey awake, and many of the crew were also believers in big families. Jessica herself was married at 19, a mother at 20, and a widow at 22. Her husband Frank was killed when walking on the outer hull when a damaged section erupted and blew him free and severed his tether. To make it worse, The automated drone that was dispatched to retrieve him misfired after hookup and burned all its fuel in the wrong vector, pushing him away from the ship faster than any of their remaining drones or maintenance shuttles could have reached and returned from. Frank was the senior member of her maintenance section, had helped train her, and always been the postal child for safety and caution her father pointed to as a role model. Her father was the deputy director of the depressurized and EVA maintenance wing. Like a lot of the younger crew, she ended up training for the same job one of her parents had. The investigation that followed showed that a minor software update from Earth had failed to properly take into account the relativistic time dilation of the ship, and it invalidated the clock and positioning system used by the drone as its navigation backup as its main antenna had been damaged in that same explosion just a freak accident and series of minor mistakes that might be taken for granted so early in the Starseed Initiative as Interstellar Arc Project. Due to light lag, Jessica was 24 when she got the first condolence letter from Earth, from a man named Duncan who was apparently a good friend of her late husband's own grandfather. He is on the board of directors of the Starseed Initiative and apparently helped Frank get his spot on the ship. The letter said he was going to make sure the matter got properly investigated, and it seems sincere, if a bit distant and awkward, and asked her to keep in touch. She suspects he basically wants her to be a spy or informant. Still, Jessica's parents aren't on good terms with either of their own families back on Earth, which seems to be the case for a lot of the settlers and crew, but she always wanted a pen pal and if he figures having a bigwig as a friend can't hurt. A lot of the awake settlers think it was a mortal, not a glitch, especially after instruction from Earth seemed to imply that. The ship's XO says it was just standard operating procedure for that to be investigated, but Jessica thinks she gets sideways glances from a lot of people on board the ship, wondering if maybe it was her. Others think it might be one of the ship's AI. Ships have few secrets and lots of gossip, and that the Francis Bailey is several kilometers long doesn't seem to make it feel any less crowded when it comes to cliques and rumor mills. There's only 10,000 people awake and most spend their time in the habitation drum, a multi-level cylinder habitat. Technically the settlers aren't allowed outside the habitation drum and a handful of other parts of the ship, and that captain's own authority is limited inside the drum, but these days the lines between crew and passengers are getting thinner. Alternatively, the line between the original crew and settlers, and those born en route, is getting much thicker. They're not going to die off either. The supermajority of the settlers and virtually all of the crew make use of nanotechnology to slow their aging to an effective standstill. The birth rate isn't super high on the ship, but it is still resulting in more people alive on the ship who didn't sign up for the mission than who did, and the ratio is growing all the time. The habitat is designed to house hundreds of thousands, more than enough to support the sleeping crew and those born on the journey along with quite the zoo and botanical garden from Earth, with far more samples frozen for the journey too, embryonic and full-grown critters in some cases. Jessica never remarried and her own son went into maintenance like she did, though by that point it was a fast-growing occupation on the ship as more and more glitches kept occurring. It broke her heart when he also died after another accident and she ended up mostly raising her granddaughter, Emily Poole. Jessica herself was almost ostracized by her shipmates and more than happy to return the cold shoulder, and put her focus into making her granddaughter the best ship's maintenance officer she could be. By this time it was getting clear there were a lot of maintenance bugs on the ship and any message they sent home to Earth to report a problem and get advice was taking most of a decade to get there, get acted on, and get sent back to them. Many of those software packages, even minor ones, often had thousands of software engineers involved in making and improving them, and some orders of magnitude more engineers, so what they could do on the ship was limited. And a lot of the updates from home were getting increasingly buggy as they tried to make fixes to ever more divergent and patchwork systems. Not that many people viewed Earth as home anymore, though some wanted to turn around and go home and there were debates on if the ship should just refuel once arriving at Lakale 8760 and take back anyone who didn't volunteer for the trip or had changed their mind. After all, it had been several decades and even many of the most enthusiastic crew and settlers who had signed up for the trip and remained awake were having second thoughts. As for those not yet born when the ship left, they never signed up for the mission. They didn't volunteer to suffer and die on some dead planet under a red sun, 76 trillion miles from home. Life on the ship is getting no easier, eventually even their internal medical nanobots started getting untrustworthy and more of the folks decided to go on ice, since that was deemed a lot safer and would help stretch resources. Jessica is glad the new cryotanks are easy to build and agrees with the XO's sentiment that they should stuff the whiners and all the settlers who aren't useful to the ship into cryostasis for the rest of the trip. Jessica herself was regularly EVA from the ship in her duties and often got heavy radiation exposure and irrelevance in an era where cancer was quickly fixed by nanobots, but in the end she went on the ice too, reluctantly, on New Year's Day of 2323, halfway to a new world she spent almost every year of her life journeying to. I think it's very easy for those of us who dream of a future in space and out among the stars to forget how long those journeys will likely be and how much they'll influence the settlers. In classic sci-fi, everyone jumps on a ship and ten days later they're at some new planet living the pioneer life. Even when the story obeys physics and limits the journey to sublight speeds, folks are usually frozen for the duration or we hear about the journey only in passing. Not many authors have tried to set their tales on those generation ships, with some notable exceptions like Gene Wolfe's Book of the Long Sun, or Robert Heinlein's Orphans of the Sky, both of which feature inhabitants that have forgotten they were on a generational arc ship, and is perhaps best known from the Star Trek episode, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, where we encounter inhabitants who don't know they're on a ship, which the Orville also looked at. It's a fun premise to explore. This idea that a ship might travel so far and so long that its crew has forgotten its purpose, and I could see that happening very easily, but it lacked an element of realism to me, or the genre-savviness any interstellar arc designers would have by the time we made one, since they will have read those books too. I would not expect any critical technology to be lost on any journey, digital data is just way too easily stored and duplicated. You might get exceptions where some tyrant in control of a ship started clamping down on who had access to data and limited backups and that led to data loss some centuries later, especially if they maintained power by threatening to destroy critical archives if attacked, but otherwise I couldn't see it. Particularly because I think civilization will only send interstellar colony missions out in three scenarios. First, that prototype effort to Alpha Centauri to prove it can be done and for the sake of prestige and maybe a few other ventures by those great nations or groups seeking to share that glory. After all, unlike the Moon missions, you have decades of travel time to wait and see if that first mission succeeded in which others might decide to send one too, and to a different system, but that might get us a few colonies around nearby stars, it won't be the norm that colonizes a galaxy of a few hundred billion stars. Second is that a post-scarcity civilization heavy with technology and resources will send out such ships and I find this case most likely to be the norm. I think that after any early prototypes and prestige missions, folks would wait till an era where interstellar colonization was much easier. The exception being the third case, that after such a wait of a few centuries, they realize it isn't getting any easier and start sending on missions anyway. And that's the scenario we discussed more in episodes like Colonizing the Galaxy and The Last Planet, it's also more the case in examples like Book of the Long Sun. And we could also imagine a case where we had to throw together a crash arc ship mission as the first of its kind to save humanity, but as we discussed in other episodes, I don't think that's a very plausible scenario even if it is also popular in fiction, and we could treat that as a fourth case. But in that second case, a post-scarcity and high tech case, it's probably one where a vast effort has been put into expanding the human lifespan and augmenting people to be more robust in many ways. They are not having the technical issues that Jessica and her granddaughter faced on the Francis Bailey, because there's already been a few generations of generation ships made to get real world experience, and that came after centuries of science fiction and serious speculation by scientists and engineers, and also likely after many decades of interplanetary settlement including deep space habitats out in the Kuiper Belt and beyond, even into the Oort Cloud. I do not doubt there will be unexpected problems that require tenacity and grace by their crews on any such journey, especially the first handful of expeditions, but I think we have to acknowledge that the overwhelming majority of colonial missions, especially once they are light centuries from Earth, are being conducted by those who have entire libraries of experience to draw on when it comes to living and traveling in space. Nonetheless, this is my first argument for what life on an interstellar arc will be like, and that is long and numerous. Trillions of miles from home, on board an artificial world, you must have backups for everything, including your officers and exports, and the knowledge and ability to fix and replace everything. And your ship is not magically immune to damage just because its crew is frozen. Albeit you can expect less wear and tear and less acts of negligence, vandalism, or sabotage. There are likely to be actuarial odds on a generation ship having some sort of human induced catastrophe such as vandalism or a tyrannical captain erasing their history, and that might be hard to avoid on intergalactic missions or someone trying to sail a hundred thousand light years to the other side of the galaxy. But outside of scenarios like that, I think we can assume most systems get colonized by multiple ships and those sent on journeys from stars not that far away in which case we are only talking about a handful of generations and likely often with many of the original settlers still alive, from life extension or freezing or both, and where the world that sent them and its many neighbors can and would send help or rescue if something happened. Additionally, while they might originate from a star system a hundred light years from where they settled, it is likely that this would be because colony ships weren't sent from the fringe of settled space, But from several systems back where the origin planet had time to grow, if we imagine space outward from Earth as spherical shells each 10 light years further out or thick, then Earth might send the majority of colony ships out to those first 10 layers inside a light century, but it might be folks from the first and second spheres who settle the 11th and 12th spheres, and a ship en route to them is likely to be able to call on other pioneer worlds along their way for help. A star system settled only a century ago and maybe with a million people isn't likely to have any interest in colonizing the star yet, but they might have interstellar ships and certainly have radios. Nonetheless, I'm not really seeing why most people would choose to make the journey on ice. Some certainly, and many more of it turned out that life extension wasn't viable, but realistically speaking, if you can repair all the cellular damage someone has taken from being frozen and bring them back to life you could more easily have repaired their cellular wear and tear. Maintenance is easier than repair, and regardless it is basically the same technology, even ignoring options like post-human cyborgs or digital minds, or genetically modified people or even uplifted animals. For those who remember Emily Poole from the Francis Bailey from one of the vignettes in last year's episode, Life in 2323 AD, she had an uplifted dog who was her best friend, and today's opening tale is the prologue for that story. Long voyages through radiation-soaked space don't make mutation too hard to believe either, and it's popular in sci-fi tales, Orphans of the Sky has a two-headed mutant as a major character, but I think that would be more likely to occur from an intentional act or sequence of them, genetic engineering and cybernetics, rather than genetic mutation. Cultural mutation can certainly happen, and that is the concern behind concepts like the Aurora effect. The idea that a generation ship arriving at some hostile world might find it harder to handle than they expected, or themselves less up for the task and turn around, which is much easier to believe if everyone on that ship was born during the journey. But I don't buy it personally, it might happen occasionally or for ships that sought to push the envelope on distance rather than just seeking the next decent and available system to settle. But it's not like any of us picked where we would be born or raised at. I was literally named for two physicists and a sci-fi author, Isaac Albert Arthur is not my pen name, my parents were geeks who met in their physics class and while I can summon minor irritation for basically having my life role cast for me while drawing my first breath, I love what I do and love the communities in which I was raised. I am hardly an anomaly, some village farmer or blacksmith a few centuries back was likely following in their father's footsteps and probably mostly loved what they did too, nor were any of them repeating their parent's life story verbatim. It's a sequel, or soft reboot, not a rerun and regardless they still did it in most cases. Being irritated at the hand you've been dealt is a long step short of deciding to abandon your family or tribe or scuttle the ship you're all sailing on. It will probably happen and after a few hundred times we'll probably have a decent formula in place for mitigating that and knowing how far we can sail the Sea of Stars before the probability reaches 50% of that ship going awry in some fashion, the half-life of an arc ship so to speak. This episode is about life on such a ship, not how long that ship might live, but that ship has a lifespan and is essentially a cultural and civilization epoch that is going to be distinct from the place they left or that they found, and a very influential one too. Think of the hundred folks on board the Mayflower back in 1620 arriving at Plymouth. I happen to live in a town called Plymouth, and it isn't that Plymouth of course, it's a tiny town of a mere 2,000, few know of, That is still 20 times bigger than that settlement that everyone in the US has heard of, and I don't doubt there's going to be an entire planet called that at some point, and sooner than later. And in a galaxy of trillions of planets, more than a hundred for every person now living, and many more than every human who has ever lived, you may well have a civilization that names you as a founder, inspiration, or namesake. Now we might question the ethical validity of wanting to found a new planet for the prestige and early access, but it is bound to be a big motive, and even if not the reason someone boarded a ship, it is likely to be on the top 5 list of reasons everyone on that ship points toward when folks start talking about the value of their quest or its hardships. When someone stands up in the town council or parliament of that Ark ship and starts questioning their purpose. They are going to get a well-polished sermon on their bold quest not being for lesser men of frail convictions who fear to tread on strange new worlds and carve their names into the bedrock of the mighty civilization they shall forge for their children. People might gripe about getting born in a ship that's basically its own isolated island of a few thousands, but people already gripe about being born in some tiny podunk town, but those towns keep going. Indeed, there are actually several towns called Podunk, and while folks get up and leave such places regularly enough, they rarely gain a big following for a mass exodus, and I can't see anyone rising to power on a ship by talking about how pointless their existence and purpose is. Alternatively, I can absolutely see people on that ship griping about that, and I can absolutely see people rising to power by talking about how transcendent and important their purpose is. And a lot of times, promising folks a land of milk and honey is not necessary, you can sit around loudly proclaiming what a desolate rock you're going to and how hard the work of forging into a civilization is going to be and still get lots of volunteers. We often worry that high-tech post-scarcity civilizations will hesitate at interstellar colonization on the grounds that they have very easy and luxurious lives and won't want to abandon those for toil, But let's be honest, that's exactly the sort of civilization that would have a wall of bodies pressing at the airlock asking to come on board. Not everyone, not even likely a large fraction, but there's always going to be folks looking for a purpose and a new place to make something of themselves, or to get away from their old life, and it is decently likely a colony ship would either contain a chunk of civilization that wasn't fond of their homeworld, a group devoted to some specific religious or ideological belief is entirely plausible as a source of colonists, or people who just want to be gone and possibly because they're not very welcome anywhere else. If even one in a thousand folks on Earth felt like that, we'd have a constant string of millions of volunteers. Historically we usually see a mix, and a direct mix too, your ship of a hundred settlers might have 80 believers and 20 hired exports who were rather indifferent to your cause, and half of those true believers might be a kid or a spouse or someone who was much more devoted to the cause than they were. Families are rarely monolithic in belief and not much settling gets done without them, so we can't imagine a lot of folks who are less than thrilled about the adventure. That's part of the reasoning I usually have about Ark ships actually being fleets and of what we dub the or ship variety, where they arrive at a destination, let off some of the people on board, along with tons of equipment, resupply on raw materials for a couple years while getting them settled in, then head off to the next system with anyone who doesn't want to stay. They manufacture more equipment and breed up more people on their decade-long voyage to each stop. Every so often they even build whole new ships and divide their fleet, and odds are they can spare one ship each time to take back the folks who want to make the journey toward the inner sphere of settled systems. That ship can stop the first settled world they backtrack to and let them off and run more visitors, migrants, and trade back to the place they came from. Now some would settle a system with a smaller ship and fewest people needed, but I'd argue you tend to go big. As we saw in exporting Earth, it is a lot easier to build an ecosystem by transplanting one and size helps in that regard. It's also a lot more attractive to people to live in a community of a dozen ships with a few thousand people on each of them than one with just a couple hundred. And such ships might carry hundreds of thousands, not hundreds or thousands. Why settle a system with less when that just invites more settlers to appear in the big gulf of time while you're growing? No one is going to feel obliged to ask permission to settle on the same continent as a colony of a few thousand, let alone a multi-planetary system and if your population doubles every century then you are looking at a thousand years to go from a thousand people to a million and a thousand more to get to a billion. I wouldn't give good odds on a couple thousand years passing without others looking at the system and heading over, and you might have had to buy that planet in some fashion, which is easier to pay for with the pocketbooks of a million settlers, not a hundred. Which brings up the matter of stakes and tours. If you haven't already allocated that planet to various settlers before you even commissioned your Ark ship, you certainly have by the time you spent a century flying through the empty void, in all likelihood part of your payment or reward system on board your ship is in the coin of that system you're traveling to claim. If you imagine a ship of 10,000 people arriving at Earth with its nearly 60 million square miles or 150 million square kilometers of land that's 6,000 square miles or 15,000 square kilometers per person. That's Connecticut or Puerto Rico or the Bahamas, Jamaica or Kuwait. And to be fair, that's all a good deal more desolate than even Kuwait if it's a dead rock you're settling. Depending on circumstances, it may have been so easy to find colonists that they paid heavily to fund the expedition and get their stake, or you might have been having to promise land and free travel to get there, and this is assuming something akin to a modern economic system, which may or may not exist here at that time, and indeed might be the reason they are leaving, it's just easier to speak in modern terms. That means realistically that even if you gave every one of those 10,000 folks several square miles all their own to dome over as they see fit, you would not have even used 1% of that planet's space, let alone that solar system, and no legitimate argument could be made that anyone wasn't being given ample land to tend. You might be paying folks with additional land or mineral rights or claims to asteroids. Again, it is a whole star system and one that begins with space travel, it doesn't necessarily mean the destination for everyone is on whatever rock they are most closely resemble as Earth. Because of redundancy though, I don't think it would ever be colonies that small and I don't think it would be just one ship or even just one habitation drum or ring on one either. Indeed, I think they would occupy a lot of their flight time building and improving habitation sections of their ship, or ships. Generally those are going to be their homes when they first arrive too, not some dome down on the planet, and being able to detach half a dozen modest sized space habitats into orbit or near valuable rocks or ice balls elsewhere in the system is a nice way to start your effort. People have been living on those for a long time so they are comfortable with it, and might choose to remain there that's half the notion of a Gardner fleet. Many on the voyage might prefer to keep voyaging, it's their life, and everyone who wants off can go, and those who don't can also go, on to the next star, or whichever promising system looks about the right distance for them to have bred up enough new people to settle it by the time they arrive. And this is a key notion, as it represents another escape valve. In many ways, life on an interstellar arc is no different than life now, or a hundred or a thousand years ago. The ecosystem and civilization is smaller, but more than big enough to allow people a lot of choices in life, including migration, you go to a different ship in the fleet or a different town in that arc ship, moving from Ingenborg to Ice Town, where a few hundred folks take care of the cryo crypts of the hundred thousand folks who felt like making the voyage on ice or decided to part way through, or who like to wake up every decade for a few years then go back to sleep. Or got told to get in the ice bin or get out the airlock, because the captain's a heavy-handed authoritarian and believes democracy is for colonies, not passengers, and has a short temper for complaints, or outright mutiny or mundane criminals. In a civilization with cryo or stasis, you just handle your bigger problems on voyages by sticking them in the freezer. Same for heading home. You need a lot of infrastructure and equipment to found a new colony, you really don't need much complexity to a ship shooting frozen people back to the nearest settled world or all the way to Earth itself, and you can probably do about one cubic meter per person on ice, so a kilometers long ship could easily keep a billion people on board that way. I should also note that if you got self-replicating tech and nanomachines that you could found a whole planet with just a few small cargo bays full of equipment and data but then you could just as easily have told that planet-changing tech to make you a giant spaceship, so there's never much reason to go small and compact. So when you arrive at the colony, your dozens of different factions all have tons of paths available to them, those wanting to be on their own to go found their personal domed habitat on their land parcel that is there for as far around as their eye can see, which if you're standing on a building 25 feet tall on a roughly Earth-sized planet would be six miles around or 72,000 acres, or 29,000 hectares. Some folks travel onto other stars, some go to one of the founding cities, some settle into those orbital habitats and stations, some claim their own comet or asteroid to mine. Some take a ship and travel to neighboring systems to begin some trade routes, or carry some migrants back and forth who want a change of scenery. Some go on the long journey back to Earth. As to on the ships, what's day-to-day life like? Well, things get manufactured, maintained, and recycled, but I doubt this would take the bulk of their time and effort. Food gets grown and probably mostly hydroponically. Even most of the animals on board for the journey probably have a zoo-like environment where we mimic their habitat but supplement their food from what we make. Nobody is steering that ship very often either. The ship's navigator is probably a small committee that meets once a month to review data to make sure everything is going according to plan and the ship's crew isn't some warship or exploration vessel with a bridge full of tactical and science officers, it's basically main engineering and logistics, plus emergency damage control. You probably pay taxes in some fashion, and you might be working for the ship's tax agency or as an accountant, or as a police officer or firefighter, or elementary school teacher or a thousand other jobs we don't normally think of in space but will doubtless outnumber all the shuttle pilots and maintenance crews. So much depends on technology, and I would imagine they would generally be a lot more automated than we are now. And however they left Earth, as we discussed elsewhere there are ways for a fleet to gather resources while traveling without stopping that fleet, sending off splinters and vanguards, automated or otherwise, and settling a star system is a long process, so being offered the task of being on a ship that breaks with the fleet to land on some rogue dwarf planet in the void to plant some automated mining gear and launch devices so you can arrive two years late but with an extra share is a gig many might volunteer for. Novelty is valuable on a journey like that, so I doubt volunteers would be hard to find, and then you've got new raw materials to build with during the trip and can start preparing your orbital ring or space elevator to deploy on arrival or prefabricating domes or adding more habitation rings to your ship, or adding another ship and so on. I don't think living quarters would ever be terribly tight on these ships though, space is not at a premium in large vessels following the cube square law, so you likely have a decent set of quarters rather than a submarine-style packed room full of bunk beds. They also have endless libraries of entertainment and knowledge at their fingertips, more than we have now, and let's be honest, if you got told you were effectively ageless and would be stuck on a ship for a century with only all of Wikipedia, YouTube, Netflix, and every book written for company, you are never running out of new and interesting watches and reads, or a million virtual worlds to play in or AI-generated entertainment. But you still have tens of thousands of people to get to know and you would still have new data beaming in from back at Earth. Indeed you might even have new arrivals catching up to your ship, again a small cryo-crypt tomb ship carrying a few hundred people and moving a little faster than your own ship might not be much bigger than a freight truck and rendezvoused with even if moving a bit faster than you so it could catch up. It would not need any more slowdown fuel than needed to slow to match speeds with your ship, since its people and cargo would be so tiny compared to that colony fleet. And you're probably equipped to handle this sort of resupply option of cargo pods being shot your way. Those might be those folks you dropped off a few decades earlier to set up a small station in the void catching up with you, or folks from the previous colony who changed their mind and decided to join the fleet, or pirates planning to burst inside and seize the ship. Let's be honest, a ship bigger than most metropolises is a tempting target to seize, and you might have conflicts going on between other ships in the same fleet. One way or another, even though it's a voyage of lifetimes through empty nothingness, there's likely to be lots of interesting times for those living on an interstellar ark ship. We talk about transplanting life and civilizations from Earth to strange new worlds, and we saw today how those ark ships are essentially worlds in motion themselves. But in many ways the process of transplanting life is really about starting biological and even cultural evolution all over again on an alien world unlike our own, on some barren planet, something we'll also be examining more this Thursday in our look at Primordial Planets. That episode was largely inspired by Zelda Singularity, a free to play science based game that sponsors our show and which I was playing right before drafting that episode and editing this one. Amusingly, this show also helped inspire that game, as Neva's designers are longtime fans of the show, and it shows in the game. Celda Singularity starts you off on a primordial planet, a barren early earth era of the most basic life forms, and takes you on a journey through dinosaurs and other epochs all the way to modern times, then goes beyond our war to forge a future out among the stars. Tap into the extraordinary tale of evolution in this cosmic clicker game, where you start as a single-celled organism, then upgrade your biology, intellect, and technology until you engulf an entire planet with a civilization on the brink of technological singularity. Explore from early Earth out to among the stars, in a game that fits easily into your busy day, and again is free to play. Whether you're on your PC or phone, just search Southern Singularity on Steam, Google Play, or iOS, and start evolving your new civilization today. So the month of March is coming up and we have 8 episodes to look at, beginning with our look at Crystal Aliens tomorrow, March 1st, as our March 2024 Nebula Exclusive. Then we'll head to the beginning of time for a look at Primordial Planets, when those could first have formed and what very young planets are like, including Earth, 4 billion years ago. Then we'll continue our discussion of terraforming from earlier this week when we looked at terraforming our own moon by asking if and when terraforming in general is ethical and what sorts of challenges future civilizations will face on deciding whether or not a planet should be terraformed and to what degree. After that we'll travel towards Mars to look not at the red planet but instead at its two tiny moons, Phobos and Deimos and ask why and how we could settle them. Then it will be time for our Sci-Fi Sunday episode, Automated Justice, for a 50 minute deep dive on the role of AI in our courts and justice system. Next month is an informal shout-out to Megastructures on the heels of this month's Nebula Exclusive on the Topopolis, where we'll be having some extra shorts on some lesser known Megastructures, and I want to give a quick shout out to my friend Neil Blevins, the author and artist for the book Megastructures, The Visual Encyclopedia. Who has been getting a lot of requests for a reprint of that book after it's sold out. If you'd like to help bring that project to life, he has a Kickstarter going and I'll link that in the description, and I'm looking forward to your feedback today and next month on what megastructures you think need their own dedicated full-length episode. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you'd like to donate or help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, along with hours of bonus content like Topopolis, The Eternal River, at go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur. As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.